0: I don't think that you can truly create unless you have had real experiences, real interactions with people, communication, and somebody to bounce things off of.
1: Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Karina Fabian. She is the author of 18 novels in the genres of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. She has produced many short stories and anthologies as well. Space Trapes Hold My Beer, is her long-running science fiction serial. She claims that her best award received is her trophy husband, Rob. He boasts the titles of Biggest Fan, Idea Man, Technical Advisor, and President of a Rocket Company. Sounds like a match made in outer space. Today we welcome Karina Fabian, a fantastic sci-fi author, and she's going to share some fiction of others and her own with us. Karina, I would love for you to take this time to read to us an excerpt of fiction that really had an impact on you.
0: Okay, so I'm reading from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. i found this book, I think I was, it was late high school or college, and it just, it made me laugh, and it was the way that he saw things, that he put things together, that um, really spoke to me and uh, informed how I do my writing. So in here, we are learning about the infinite improbability drive. The infinite improbability drive is a wonderful new method of crossing vast interstellar distances in a mere nothingth of a second without all that tedious mucking about in hyperspace. It was discovered by lucky chance and then developed into a governable form of propulsion by the galactic government's research team on Damogram. This, briefly, is the story of its discovery. The principle of generating small amounts of finite improbability is simply by hooking the logic circuits of a Bambleweeny fifty seven submisan brain to an atomic vector plotter suspended in a strong Brownian motor motion producer, say a very nice hot cup of tea, were of course well understood. And such generators were often used to break the ice at parties by making all the mole- molecules in a hostess' undergarment leap simultaneously one foot to the left, according to the theory of intermediacy. Many respectable physicists said that they weren't going to stand for this, partly because it was a debasement of science, but mostly because they didn't get invited to those kind of parties. Another thing they couldn't stand was the perpetual failure they encountered in trying to construct a machine which would generate the infinite improbability field needed to flip a spaceship across the mind-paralyzing distances between the farthest stars, and in the end they grumpily announced that such a machine was virtually impossible. Then one day, a student who had been left to sweep up the lab after a particularly unsuccessful party found himself reasoning this way. If... He thought to himself, such a machine is virtually impossible, then it must logically be a finite improbability. So all I have to do in order to make one is to work out exactly how improbable it is, feed that figure into the finite improbability generator, give it a fresh cup of really hot tea, and turn it on. He did this and was rather startled to discover that he had managed to create the long-sought-after golden infinite improbability generator out of thin air. It startled him even more just when just after he was awarded the Galactic Institute's Prize for Extreme Cleverness, he got lynched by a rampaging mob of respectable physicists who had finally realized that the one thing they really couldn't stand was a smart ass.
1: I love it. I love it. I love it.
0: So do I. That's been like my favorite thing in the world. In fact, um, the priest that t- took my husband through his uh, conversion and also through our marriage counseling, this was our gift to him.
1: Was Hitchhiker's Guide.
0: <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide, Yes. <laughs> So, this is very priests need a laugh.
1: So, this is a very powerful work of fiction for you in more than one (laughs) way. It's downright sacramental.
0: It it certainly speaks to who I am and also to my husband. He has this same kind of humor, and he would be that guy that would sit down and go, Wait, if I have to just do this, then I can create this.
1: (laughs) Mm hmm. And And I love the fact that if I remember correctly, Douglas Adam is from the other side of the pond, correct? Yes, so of course is. it had to that. be a good, strong cup of tea that Absolutely. was the solution to the problem. So if your husband were creating this device, would he be using tea or coffee or something stronger?
0: Diet Coke, Diet Coke.
1: Well, if it can do what it does to the human body, maybe it can do something (laughs) for science as well. Very fine. At least it's the right color, right?
0: (laughs) It's loaded with caffeine. Amen.
1: It sure is. Oh, I'm just so grateful. I I am so grateful to have you on the show because when I met you, you, you had me rolling. I had tears streaming down my face because... You just have this incredible sense of humor, and it's so needed right now. It's so needed right now. And, and I, like I said, I think it shows with your choice of literature that you wanted to share with us.
0: Hmm.
1: What I love about that piece is not only does it have the humor, but there's a lot of intellectual weight going on with that as well.
0: Yes, yes. And that's what... um that's what I really like because I, I do. I get into the slapstick. I get into the kind of things that would make a twelve-year-old go. <laughs> he made a joke, but um, I I also love humor that is smart that looks at things intelligently, but from this bizarre angle. Um, it reverses the polarity by ninety degrees instead of just reversing the polarity.
1: What other writers really inspired you to become a writer yourself?
0: Actually, the first writer to inspire me was Madeline Lingle. It was fifth grade. Um, Our teacher was reading to us Wrinkle in Time. And I, I felt guilty afterwards because I'm sure she thought I was asleep because I had my head on my desk like this so that I could imagine the story in my mind and people wouldn't see my face going through all of the emotions and things, which when I'm writing, I have to be alone too, because of that same thing. I get the manic grins or I get mad and people are like, what would be wrong with her? So, but um, the character of Charles Wallace actually just captured my imagination. And uh, in high school, I had written fanfic about him and all of his adventures as an adult. So, which of course never happened. Um, I actually wrote to her and asked her if she was going to do anything with Charles Wallace with the, the thought that I would then ask her, could I write this one? And that just, that never happened. I I didn't get the nerve. And, and then of course she passed away. So, but I did take that story and change the characters and, wrote it as a novel in college. And then that novel went nowhere because it was a college novel and it was first time I'd written anything that major. And it was a big Mary Sue. And so I put it away for almost 10 years, went into the military, had children, came back to it um, after I'd gotten out of the military and was homeschooling the kids and looked at it. And I was like, oh, good heavens, this kid has no problems in his life. No wonder this, st- this whole novel stinks. But I loved the planet that I'd given them, and I loved the um, basic plot, and I loved the um, conflict and all of that. So I was like, okay, well, I just need to change this character, and I need to give him a couple problems. And he's a psychic character. So by the time I got done, I, I put him in an asylum. It was so sad. <laughs> I really, really wrecked him. <laughs> and, but it was fabulous because the first book, and this one's not one of my funny books was all about him escaping the asylum with the help of an intern who went ahead and just believed he was psychic. Said, you know what, I don't care if you're psychic or not, just as long as you can manage in society. I mean, how many psychics do we have out there? You walk down the street and you're going to find somebody wanting to do your poem. So um, and it turns out he really is psychic. And so there's a whole trilogy with that one. It's called the Mind Over series. So mind over mind, mind over psyche, and mind Over All. and that one's by dragon moon press, so but that was my that was my first one, and it was thanks um to Madeline Lingle. The humor uh Terry Pratchett has been a big um, influence, and uh if you ever saw the um, stand-up comedians that did the improv whose line is it anyway
1: i've actually seen them live
0: it's it's not a book of you oh my gosh i'm so jealous that is so cool so um i was i wanted to be part of an anthology about dragons and my husband and i were sitting spitballing ideas you know how can i do something different with dragons because everybody's done you know the dragon princess that's been swapped and everyone's done the dragon is a friend and the dragon is a tool etc i was like what's new and we finally got disgusted and we're like you know what let's go watch tv with the kids and we were watching whose line is it anyway um they were doing a noir scene in a bowling alley looking for a parrot and it was absolutely stupid and everybody was laughing and and i'm thinking i could do this i could do this with a dragon and so that's where verne who is my noir dragon brought low by Saint George and was uh, living on our side of the interdimensional gap solving crimes as a down and out uh, private detective and he's actually become a whole series as well so i have two books out right now a couple that are out of print that i'll be bringing back that's the dragon eye series and he's a lot of fun and He's one of the reasons that I got involved in the Catholic Writers Guild. So
1: That's just fantastic. I've read a fair amount of Terry Pratchett, and kind of like what you were talking about with Douglas Adams, that there's this incredible humor, but it's almost using humor to um, sometimes, not always, sometimes it's just goofy fiction, but a lot of times he's addressing some pretty serious issues in his books through humor and making those issues accessible and giving you a place to look into them. So I like a lot of the, I, I like a lot of the authors that have inspired you too. I mean, there's just a little bit of joy being part of nerd culture, isn't there?
0: <laughs> there is, there is. And
1: I, I think I
0: if, grew up in it, so I love it. Yeah. I
1: think we have, we we have one, two, three, four. We have four, five, five bookshelves in the house. We have a very small house. And of one of the bookshelves, my husband's books are, it's almost an entire shelf of just Terry Pratchett. It's like Mm -hmm. Terry Pratchett. And then above it, we've got, you know, Lewis and Chesterton and Tolkien. And we actually have two sets of Lord of the Rings. And then another, I don't know if, it, it's not nerd culture, but have you read James Harriet? No. Oh, I think you would really like James Harriet because he—it's the um, all creatures great and small. Oh, mm-hmm. It's th- that's who wrote those books, and I think you would love it that it takes you both to these incredible comedic highs, but also takes you through drama too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you would really like it because my husband, his favorite authors are probably. James Harriet and Terry
0: Pratchett. Oh, um, so I wrote it down.
1: All right, awesome. I just I, I could talk about books all day. Maybe that's why I have a podcast. And... Um, I I'm really excited about all of these ideas and humor and things like that. But I know what I think of it. I want to hear from you why you feel like fiction really matters.
0: That one's a tough one for me to answer because I always feel like especially my fiction, which is very silly and just fun. What I do is for escaping. I do it for fun. Um, I write because I want to laugh and I want to look at things in a very funny way and just have a good time. And so when I pick up my books or when I want people to pick up my books is when they're looking for a respite from the world. Sometimes my books surprise me because my characters will take us into deeper themes. Um, The Need a Life, Zombie Exterminator series, since we're looking into just coming in out of Halloween. um, I wrote that first one because I was very caught in... We were living in California, and so I was kind of caught in that California culture. So part of it was trying to laugh at some of the extremes of um, the cultures and so and of the politics and that kind of thing which you know is, is even more now but uh, Nita is an exterminator after the zombie not apocalypse, because I couldn't I can't believe the standard trope of the zombie disease is going to take us over I mean look at when we ha- this happened right after the H1N when I wrote this book, and we took care of that one. Uh, even COVID, as damaging as COVID has been, it has not decimated our world. We haven't lost you know 50% of our population and piles of dead and whole towns, nothing and that kind of thing. And so I can't see why if a zombie virus, we weren't going to try and stop that and put all of our powers against it so what we have now are zombies that are household pets pests
1: (laughs) i think pets would be a fine story as well
0: let's see there we go now see this is one of those things because what did we have as soon as we had the zombies that were we got them down to just about nothing and the fear was gone suddenly there rises this whole movement zombies are people too and they're not really dead. They, they've come back, and it's a miracle. And uh, so there's, there's this like this one section in uh, the very first book where Josie Gump's husband comes back from the dead, and he just wanders into the trailer and sits down, turns on the TV, and he grunts, and that's all he does is grunt and drink beer and sit in front of the television. But everybody and the zombies or people too are thinking, oh, "It's a miracle her husband's come back," and they've convinced her this is her husband until until she stands in front of the TV and suddenly realizes he's a monster because he tries to attack her, and she says, "You're not the man I married. You're not even a man."
1: Oh man!
0: And so so zombies are pets, Well, zombies are people, but it's that that denial kind of thing that I wanted to have fun with and mock a little bit. Um, And then I do that with uh, environmentalism. Like right now, the the book that's coming out uh, the 29th of October is called I Left My Brains in San Francisco. It's about these environmental extremists who are not against fossil fuels, but against manure-based fueled, which is a brand new technology that's been developed. And so this, essentially, a environmental cult kills themselves at the refinery after basically brainwashing themselves to come back and attack it after they rise the Oh, my the goodness.
1: Dead. So it's their whole master plot.
0: <laughs> a, their whole master plot is to come back as zombies and take out the refinery as environmental protest.
1: The question is, did they all wear the same kind of shoes?
0: I didn't even think about it. Although I do have one scene where some of the some of the celebrities in the area, when they die, were being buried uh, at sea to feed the fish. Oh. It was a very environmentally sensitive way to to give your body and of course, but they went dressed to the nines as they went to their watery graves, and so there is a scene where they get um Oh, I can't even remember the actress's name. Her diamond studded high heel. And she comes back from the dead looking for her shoe.
1: <laughs> so I see that you use humor to engage in ideas and have an introspective look at things that are happening in our culture. But it also seems like you just want to give people a little bit of a break from the heaviness of life. And it reminds me of what J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in On Fairy Stories about that. This escape isn't necessarily something that's purely light, even though it is light, but it's also just giving us a break from the darkness and heaviness of the world, that it's more like a prisoner escaping prison than a soldier that's going AWOL. How do you experience that when you read fiction?
0: Oh, when a story is really good, I can become the characters. A lot of, a lot of people are very visual thinkers. And so they can, they see the story playing out and everything. That's not how it is for me. I'm a very um, tactile kind of feeling. I hear things, I feel things I emote. And so um, when I am deep into a story, then I'm becoming that character. So in a, in, One sense, it gets me away from myself, um, but allows me to have that kind of emotional experience without it having to be part of my life. I I can mourn as a character. I can laugh as a character. I can be in extreme danger as a character. And... It's a very safe place, and yet it can be a very exciting place. And, so, um, and the same thing happens when I'm writing. I never try to tell my characters what to do. They tell me what they're doing, and I just kind of go along with them. Again, I feel what they feel. I see what they see. I'm excited when they're excited, and I'm just trying to get that down on the page. And the hardest part of writing is when I have to sit down and see what they see. So, um, as far as the escapism, it's basically because I'm, I can be there with them and then I can come back into my own life. And I've got to be pretty honest, I've got a really good life. (laughs) So I don't feel a need to escape my life necessarily. Um, for me, it is, it's just the pleasure and the fun. And a lot of people get this out of video games and things, but for me, it's, it's reading the books and actually going through the whole cycle of adventures.
1: Do you feel like you take some of those experiences and actually integrate a little of that experience into your everyday life, or does it just stay in fiction?
0: There are times when um, a character, and I can't think of any right now, because they do, like you said, they just get kind of integrated in there. When a character says or does something, and I can come away going, you know, there's a time in my life where i could have used that or i'll think you know the next time i i will be more like this character or i i will keep in mind how the experience happened for them but i have to admit i'm i'm very much aware that in fiction things have to work out so there has to be a happy ending. So, some action that this character takes, I can say, yeah, that's great in a fairy tale world.
1: <laughs> but it doesn't always. I mean, we're not guaranteed a, a happy outcome in life.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It, it's, it could very much backfire because I may think that that would be great as this character to do this, but especially with human interaction, you have to have the other character that's going to react properly too so
1: yeah that and well and especially like you were talking about that you have to do what your characters are telling you is true to their experience Mm -hmm. so talking to them and making sure that things are actually working out probably provides a little bit of a challenge at times it
0: can i mean they generally again because this is it's a fiction world when i'm writing they do gravitate toward the happy ending, but sometimes how they get there is completely different. I had one character, and she was just, she was a minor character, um, and she was supposed to be the plucky sidekick, where my dragon Vern and uh, his, his uh, partner, Sister Grace, were supposed to be bumbling around because they are magical people in a highly technological world and didn't understand all of that. And then um, this other character was just going to come in and kind of get things done while they were still trying to figure out what was going on. And she wouldn't do it. She just flat out refused. I spent months trying to figure out why this novel wasn't working. And it came down to, she wanted to be a damsel in distress. She wanted to wear impossible high heels and a slinky silver gown. She wanted to get kidnapped She wanted her boyfriend to rescue her from dire peril. And she wasn't going to stand for anything else. She didn't want to be my plucky sidekick. That was not who she was. And finally, I was like, okay, fine. Be the damsel. And I wrote the story. And oh my gosh, it was so good. It was so good. She was perfect. And it was hilarious. And Vern and the boyfriend got to save her. And then after that, later on in the book, she saved them. She just needed her way. And so I, that's why I never, after that, I learned my lesson. My characters want to take a complete left turn. I'm like, yes, let's go. What do you want me to do? <laughs> so a lot of my books are about the left turns.
1: <laughs> well, and that just makes them so much more interesting in that. It allows us to go those places in our mind and in our experience that convention wouldn't necessarily go. Oh, I need to follow the trope. Oh, I need to follow this plot line. Or um, this is the way this story always ends. And the reality is there's an infinite number of ways that it could end. And you're getting to take us to those places. And that's really cool. So you talk a lot about seeing the world through one of your character's eyes. And immediately when you were talking about that, what came to my mind was old school pen and paper role playing games. (laughs) Is this something that you like to experience?
0: Um, I actually didn't start doing Dungeons and Dragons much until my husband, um, until after we had gotten married. And um, we have a long-running game that we play with our adult children. It's our way of staying together. Uh, technology has helped a lot with that since we're scattered everywhere. We play on Roll20 and then talk on Discord. And we're also part of a um, of a group um, through Catholic Geeks that plays. And so, yeah, we do that. Ironically, it's it's a different experience for me. And I do not get into my characters the way that some people do. In part, I think because um, somebody else, the dungeon master, is leading the plot. And so depending on how good or bad your dungeon master is, and I don't mean good or bad as in, you know, he's a bad dungeon master, but how much they allow for character interaction. I don't get to do that kind of um, deep character that I might do, and also just because with other people, I just I'm more inhibited. I really am than when I'm writing by myself and, and on the page. I know people don't think people who know me would never think that I'm inhibited, but I am. I am. What they're seeing um, is actually a, a diminished who I am in my brain.
1: <laughs> That's really fascinating. That's really fascinating. It it seems from what you're describing that. And this used to be a bad word in my vocabulary, but that you're a very sensitive person.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with that. And I'm also sensitive to what other people think kind of person. We did personality tests and I, I was an SC, which means that I'm a social, highly detailed kind of person. So which can be very good, but can also mean that you spend a lot of time second guessing who you are. And, uh, the fun thing is I don't do that on my writing. I just let go. That's, that's where, that's where you get some of this bizarre humor. And and actually there have been times when I'll, I'll send something across to my husband and I'll go, okay, is this as funny as I think it is? And he'll go, maybe you better tone that one back just a bit. (laughs) It happened a couple of times with the Need a Life books where the humor got too cutting. And there've been a couple of times where I've had something in my head that just seemed fantastically hilarious, but also one of those inappropriate jokes that I would have laughed at at 12 in the schoolyard kind of thing. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't really make it for this kind of fiction anymore. (laughs) Do I really want my children or worse, my dad to read this story?
1: (laughs) Well, that's a good way to figure out your self-editing, huh? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're actually, when um, the kids were little, I would read my books out loud to them as I was editing. And so a lot of times when I was writing, I, I would be thinking, can I read this aloud to my children and not have to kind of skip over something?
1: <laughs> mm. So, well, And that's a really powerful idea because unfortunately, a lot of what I've seen in fiction, it might have a great plot. It might have a great story. But it's not something that would be appropriate to read to a family. And not that everything needs to be appropriate to read to a family. But some of the images and ideas that you don't even want living in your own head. And yeah. that they sneak up on you.
0: They do. You get into a book and it's really good. And then all of a sudden, bam. And you're like, this did not have to be in there. Yeah, but the nice thing with a book is you can always just kind of skip and scan. I, I've, I've come across those. And what I'll do is I'll read like the, the first Couple of words of a paragraph and go. Okay, I know what they're trying to say, and just move on. But television now, by the time you're smacked with it, it's too late. Yep, that drives me crazy.
1: (laughs) And it's hard because, especially with it being a visual media, that images stick. Yeah,
0: it's burned absolutely.
1: And I find it hard even advertising. Because I don't even watch network television. We don't have network television in our house. And I'll be um, watching a YouTube video with my kids. You know, we homeschool as well. So we might be watching something about history Mm -hmm. or a lot of times it's history. But I have to watch out for what commercial might pop up because some of the commercials are so licentious or the Ah. movie trailers are terrifying And I'm like, Mm. I didn't ask for this. How did this get here? And I don't Yeah, I'm a veteran as well. And, you know, we've seen a lot of life. It's an interesting lifestyle. You encounter an enormous variety of people and ideas. But like you said, it smacks you in the face and you can't walk back from it after it's happened.
0: You really can't.
1: And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is to give people an opportunity to continue to enjoy and seek out new fiction but not worry that they're two thirds into the book and all of a sudden the last 30% is all things you really don't want to read about. (laughs) It seems like in your creative process that your family and particularly your husband are a huge role.
0: Oh yeah. Rob, Rob is my, he's my idea, man. He is the person that I bounce things off of, um, especially in my science fiction, If I'm not sure about something, about how something might work or whether the idea I have makes sense, he's the person I go to because, again, he's just like in that introduction. He is the one who can say, well, let's take part A and part B, and if we put those together and then add this part over here, suddenly we have something brand new that no one's ever thought of. And he's like this at work. He's like this um, at home. He's like this when he's helping me with my fiction. And so um, it's it's wonderful. He's like the perfect author's husband. He really is. <laughs> and and he, and he loves my stuff. So you just can't go wrong there.
1: <laughs> Did you think that this is how your relationship would look when you guys were dating?
0: We met... Because um, I had met his best friend, and we were in Texas. And I was in field training at the time. I didn't, I hadn't found anybody who liked Star Trek. We even one person didn't even know what Star Trek was. And then I met Jeff, who's our friend, and he's like, "Oh, I do like Star Trek." And I got a little nuts, and I started showing him all my Star Trek paraphernalia, which I had brought with me. And he said, "I know who you have to talk to." He got on the phone. He called Rob. He said, talk to this woman. Handed me the phone. I said, live long and prosper. Rob said, I'll be right there. He came oh, over. I opened the door and he was like this.
1: Oh, given the, the Vulcan greeting? The
0: Vulcan greet, the Vulcan peace sign. Um, and then we, the three of us went out to dinner and to, to buy me a television because I'd just gotten paid. At dinner, we started punning back and forth. And Jeff was sitting in between us and we were punning so much that Jeff ducked under the table to escape us. Our whole relationship started because of Star Trek and puns. So the fact that here we are and he helps me with my science fiction and humor is completely predicted.
1: <laughs> and, and how many years has it been now?
0: 31 on November 3rd.
1: Oh, how exciting. That's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah.
0: And he's, he's just the most amazing man. <laughs> I have a very, very gifted life, and it's, it's because God brought him to me. What a gift. What a true <laughs>
1: gift. And it's so it's so refreshing when people talk about their blessedness and reveling in their blessedness. What other things do you feel have been key to your creative process besides your relationship with your family?
0: Catholic Writers Guild. I have had so many great friends. Um, Anne Lewis was probably the first person to help me take my writing to the next level. Um, I would written my first Verne novel, which really was just a whole lot of fun, slapsticky kind of things that could happen when you have magic and technology that aren't quite mixing and a bunch of magical creatures who don't know what's going on in the, in the this world. And she said, well, this is all really good, but there are no stakes in this story. So they, it, it's fun, but why should anybody care? And so ever since then, Um, when I write a story, not so much now because it's finally been ingrained, but at the beginning, I would always go back to what Anne said. Why should people care? Where are my stakes for my characters? Um, It can't just be, oh, we're having a fun time. And so that was a a very big deal. Um, Michelle Buckman taught me that when you describe something, it has to have a purpose. Um, in fact, I call my publishing company Laser Cow. And this is my laser cow. This is Mucutus, And that came because she was editing something um, at one of the, con- the conventions and was getting frustrated because it was just a long description. And she's like, I don't need this long description. I was like, you don't spend three pages talking about the cows. And I was like, well, unless they have fricking laser beams on their head. And so that's why I now have laser cow press. But that is the point is you don't spend a lot of time describing something unless it's got a reason for that description to be there. There has to be some, it has to tie in on more than just a scene setting level. Um, And then for me also, it's got to have the twist. Going back to the description of the improbability drive, the twists that he gave to those things, you know, it could be done at this party and the physicists were upset. Well, because they don't go to those kind of parties rather than just the, you know, affront to technology. Uh, so that has been a lot. And then the critique group, um, God, there's so many good people in that group that's, that's So many, I could spend the whole time just naming them all, but have taught me a lot about being concise, about um, getting the right words, about knowing when to take a hatchet to my darlings, and where something is really, really funny and well-explained up here only. And I, I don't get it. I don't understand the reference that I have to go back and make sure that I've built things. So I am a much better writer because of the people that I've met in the guild.
1: It's almost like creativity can't exist in a vacuum, even if it's a solitary action.
0: It's true. It is true. Um, you can only do so much, and I, I don't. I don't think that was ever true. I don't think that you can truly create unless you have had real experiences, real interactions with people, communication and somebody to bounce things off of.
1: That's really good advice. Talking about science fiction, fantasy in specific, what do you think the importance of that genre to the culture is?
0: Well, we talked about you know, giving an escapism. We talked about being able to see real-world things in different ways. Um, but the other thing is to be able to explore concepts. And I'm thinking specifically for science fiction. Um, people don't always realize, that a lot of science fiction nerds do, but there are a lot of things that we have now that were explored before the technology was created um the flip phone was purposely uh modeled after star trek communicators that's why we had that that kind of flip and things and there's probably a whole generation now that are going what are you talking about flip phone but (laughs) but that was that was based on the star trek um communication satellites were first predicted I, i think it was larry nevin And he knew about the the theories and the technologies, but this is before we had things in satellites in geosynchronous orbit um, being used. So telecommunications were predicted early. There are NASA researchers that are actively trying to create warp drive. Wow. Yeah, because they're inspired by these thoughts, these imaginations. Um, The replicators. In Star Trek and I know I'm I'm using a lot of television type references but there are even more in books Um, it's just TV is so common a genre you know people are going to be able to easily identify whereas if I were to mention um, a Heinlein novel they might go I I don't know that one Um, but like replicators 3D printing and they're working now on 3D printing food so
1: I don't know if I want 3D printed food (laughs) I'll just plant some seeds in the yard and
0: <laughs> I am working on a story. I have this, um I have this series. It's called Space Trapes Hold My Beer. It's based on an idea that was floating around TikTok about how humans will actually uh, run run the Federation because we are the only species that is arrogant and impulsive enough to throw two warp cores into a black hole just to see what happens, get thrown into a mirror universe, steal a couple more warp cores, throw them into a black hole so we can get back, and then wonder if we could do it again with three. But in this particular story that I'm writing right now, they are running a blockade by a group of space-faring creatures, or humans, humanoids, that are called the Repgans, because they believe that only replicated food is the kind of food that civilized people should eat. So it's like taking vegans and then taking out plants altogether. Everything has to be replicated because otherwise it is cruel and unusual to the plant. Oh boy. (laughs) This has been a lot of fun. So I don't know if you remember Smokey and the Bandit.
1: Yes, vaguely.
0: It's Smokey and the Bandit in space.
1: Very fine. Do you, <laughs> you, the question is, do you have the same great soundtrack?
0: Oh, gosh, I wish I did.
1: <laughs> it's too bad a novel can't have a soundtrack.
0: I actually have, I actually have a song that um, when the original Need a Life, I Left My Brains in San Francisco was done in a, as an audiobook, The author did write a song based on the song that um, the environmentalist zombies used. To brainwash themselves to come back oh no <laughs> it's a wrap and it is just ridiculous
1: <laughs> that is awesome i'm gonna have awesome. to
0: put that one back on on social media so people know i wish i could just link it in the, in the book
1: <laughs> well i don't know about your military experience but i know that we had plenty of little sing-song rhymes to remember everything when i was in basic training <laughs> Like, that's how I remember what the effects of a nerve gas are, or how to fire a claymore mine. You know, the <laughs> things you can remember 20-some <laughs> years later. Yep. I don't think the claymore mine is ever going to come to play in the future, but you never know.
0: I think I need to try and use that now in the space traps where they have some kind of danger, and the the engineering team is trying to save the warp core or something, and they're going to sing how to do it. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> they do have one rhyme. Um, if a panel electrocutes you, go to the one on the right. And I can't remember how it went. <laughs> that was a very early episode.
1: Yeah, ours was the the nerve gas one. If I'll see how much I can remember. Strange and confused behavior. Gurgling sounds when breathing. Unconscious stoppage of breathing. Loss of bladder and bowel control. There you go. <laughs> and we even had a little dance that went oh with it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the power of media, people. The power yep. of media.
0: Is that one on YouTube?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I haven't looked, to be honest. Uh... <laughs> And let's be honest, we're going back to the 90s, so it might not be as catchy as it was back in the day.
0: I don't know, when to teach your kids.
1: Oh, I know, right? (laughs) My poor kids, they, that's, I don't know what your homeschooling experience is like, but my kids learned all sorts of interesting things. Yesterday, we were reading about the monastery at Monte Cassino and talking about it going back to the 500s and then it getting bombed by the Allies during World War II and now being rebuilt and and talking about, you know, was it necessary for it to be bombed or was it not? What information did the Allies have? You know, in all of yeah. these different kinds of questions. And a lot of people find it strange because my kids are five and seven. <laughs>
0: But but what um, do you do? Yeah. Uh, When when my kids started religious education, um, the oldest one was correcting his Sunday school teacher.
1: Oh, I'm sure that made you a happy mom.
0: (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) And I think the strangest thing we ever did was try to mummify a chicken.
1: (sighs) Were you successful?
0: Oh, my gosh. We were successful at sneaking up the garage. That's for sure. That is like the smelliest experiment ever. In the end, I was doing it. I was making them watch me as we were doing it because we started mummifying this chicken. We were going to take it to its grisly end. And then we threw it in the trash. Poor thing. All mummified with its little stuff. Someday some archaeologist is going to go and find this chicken all wrapped up with little trinkets and wonder, why? What ceremony was this?
1: Oh my god. <laughs> the, the 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 early 21st century religious practices yes, of, of Americans. <laughs> oh my gosh. <sighs> like, some of these experiences are just too good. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah. So trying to get back to the book because my <laughs> face is hurting from your story. My face <laughs> hurts from your mummified chicken. I knew this was going to happen. Um what do you think sets your work apart from other books or authors within its genre besides the inclusion of mummified chickens?
0: <laughs> it's a big combination of silly and serious. Just looking broad spectrum of all of my stuff, I have some very serious work. um, The Mind Over Mind, uh, Discovery, which is Catholic science fiction. Get to that in a minute. And then I have the Absolute Silly, which is Space Trapes Hold My Beer, which is hijinks and Star Trek parodies in uh, in space with a redneck crew that is willing to do just about anything, even within the books, like – my last Verne novel, If Wishes Were Dragons... Had a lot of very funny D and D tropy kind of stuff, and then it had some very serious issues um, of dealing with family and betrayal because Vern was reunited with his dragon family after eight hundred years of not knowing what had happened to them. So, and this next one that I'm doing is actually a lot more serious than most of the Verne novels, and it's going to have a lot of PTSD and healing as far as themes and I'll have to go back and try and and make sure that the fun is in there too, but it's a Vern. There can't not be fun and snark. a lot of snark. So there's a unique, I think anyway, I try and give a unique take on um, standard genres like need a life, zombie exterminator. The zombies are not the harbingers of doom, but your household pest a dragon who's serving the Catholic church and is very grouchy about it. Or these rednecks in space that are having a good time. Uh, There's also a lot of my work is Catholic to some degree. Uh, Some of it explicitly so. My Rescue Sisters stories, which you can find on Amazon, and also the novel Discovery, are about nuns that do search and rescue operations in outer space. So... Trying to combine um the idea of charisms and the thought that whenever mankind has ventured out into new worlds, the church has always been there alongside, trying to help in some way. I think that's kinda it. <laughs> I think that's enough. Mainly it's it's all very twisted and um kinda like a marble cake. Mm, okay. <laughs> Yum. Now I'm hungry. <laughs>
1: I know, right? It's almost lunchtime here. Mm. I'm like, oh, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> yes. So what upcoming work do you have? You said you were working on another Vern story. And when do you think that these will be available?
0: Okay, so I just launched a Space Trape story on Vela. And you don't have to have read any of the other stuff to enjoy it. It's a parody slash homage to Gamesters of Triscalian. From Star Trek, the original series, but it takes place with Roller Derby. And again, that's on Vela. It's called Gamesters of Triscatelium. Then Need a Life, Zombie Exterminator in I Left My Brains in San Francisco is up right now for pre-order from Amazon. After that, I'm going to do next month another Rescue Sisters story, These Three, which is about um, rescue... In outer space, and it's actually more about a a saint apparition, where she helps a, a seriously injured crewman stop his ship from crashing into a space station.
1: Well, that sounds fascinating. I I have read some of the space trapes and um, rescue sisters stories in preparing for our interview, and it's it, it is a really neat thing that it. The Rescue Sisters reminds me a lot of like the Orders Hospitaller, that that, um, just starting out and serving people who are isolated and need help, Mm -hmm. which completely makes sense to me. The
0: idea was um, there was going to be a need for that. And if a civilian market was going to take it, it was going to be crazy expensive because there would be such a strong need. But the church comes in and with their vows of poverty, they just want enough to survive and to continue building a presence out in space. And so they, they undercut the competition.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Lowest bidder.
0: Pretty much, pretty much. That's, that's what, um, the founder of the order was like, you know what? We can do this without all of the markup. All you got to do is let us do it for air supplies and the love of God. That's all we need.
1: Very cool. The other thing it reminds me of, but I don't want to say why, because I don't want there to be spoilers, <laughs> is um, Canticle 4 Leibowitz. Have you read that one?
0: Oh, yes. Oh, Quite some time I, ago. Is.
1: But I don't want to talk about why it reminds me of it, because, <laughs> because I don't want you there to, to be spoilers. tell me later,
0: and now I want to know. <laughs> yeah,
1: once we're done recording, we'll, we'll absolutely have that discussion. But the, the listeners are just going to have to read that book, because it is sci-fi gold. Mm-hmm. and it was written in the 1950s, but you would seriously think it was a contemporary piece except for, like, one or two technology things in it. Exactly. I was I was blown away by it. It was powerful, and I need to read the sequel, and I haven't done that yet. Add that to my to-be-read list. Yes. <laughs> which I have uh, an e-reader now, which I didn't have a few months ago, and it's full of books I need to read and beta read and things like that, and then... I have a box full of books that are research for my own fiction that I'm writing, as well as books I picked up at the quarter sale where it's like, ooh, I have to read that. <laughs> and not all of it is fiction. Like I've got I've I've seriously never read Um The Hiding Place by Corey Tenboom. And so I picked that up. And I also found at the quarter sale a book by Ellie Weissel called um, Being a Jew Today. And I thought, hmm. ooh, that these just sounded powerful and what an interesting yeah. combination. And one of my historical fiction books takes place during World War II. So mm-hmm. I thought having that kind of European war experience would be important for my research. So, yeah. I, I, you know, you never know what I'm going to be reading. It's, it's all a mystery.
0: But That's what's going to make your fiction so much better because pulling in different elements that aren't expected, it, it just, it makes it a richer story.
1: Well and that's the thing like you look at Tolkien's work mm-hmm. and he created a world. He created a, a universe, he created a theology he, even though it's not expressly called a theology. He mm-hmm. and and it's so immersive and like me personally I love Middle-earth so much that me and my husband actually play the online role playing the yeah. the Lord of the Rings online. Mhm. Because The artwork is so well done, and most of the developers seem really dedicated to being true to Tolkien's vision. And so it it allows me to immerse myself character-wise into this world, and I get to be a Battle Hobbit princess for a little (laughs) while.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nothing better.
1: (laughs) I I love hobbits. What can I say? It's like, I want to be a hobbit, and then I find out I'm actually Boromir. And it's like, (laughs) ugh. That I'm kind of a prideful turkey, but, <laughs> you know, we, we do our best. We do what we can. I am inviting you now to test the fates, my friend. We Uh-oh. are ready for our random round. Oh, okay.
0: And <laughs> you
1: being a gamer, you know what these are. I do. So these are my percentile dice for our listeners. You can choose from tie-dye or pink with mermaid sparkles. Tie-dye tie-dye, a woman after my own heart. (laughs) All right. And then there's the hundred over caffeinated questions. So we'll see what happens. (laughs) Did you like school?
0: I liked teachers. I liked studying. I liked extracurriculars in high school when I got into the extracurriculars. Um, I did not like most of the social interactions. Um, I was shy and nerdy. And I found out afterwards, uh, for my best friend no less, that most of my classmates just thought I was stuck up. So, So I... Go if I could go back with a little bit of what I know now, I think I would have enjoyed school immensely and had a much more fun. But I sweated all the small stuff, um, that had to do with people interaction again, because like I said, I'm, I'm a social, detailed person, and so um, that was definitely in my personality. So I was very angsty, but I loved, um, I loved learning. Uh, loved my teachers. They were always really good to me. And so overall, I would have to say, yes, I did love school.
1: Very fine. How do you think the world will be in 50 years?
0: Here's hoping it's not like in need a life, <laughs> where there are zombies that occasionally roam and get into your trash um, and where the state of California won't let you use bleach to drive them away.
1: They're just looking for mummified chickens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They may. They may. Most of the time, they're looking for spoiled McDonald's.
1: (laughs) Isn't it spoiled when you buy it? It's the
0: secret sauce. Who can resist? Unless you're in Utah, in which case it would be the fry sauce. (laughs) Um, But I think that... um, I hope that in 50 years we will have a presence on Mars, that space travel will become normalized, and whatever technology and benefits flow from that, I'm hoping by then we'll have been able to capture an asteroid and mine it, but if not, I'm hoping we're at least on our way toward that. Here, I'm hoping that politically we will have swung back right now we you know you go from you go from to extremes right now i think we're here in our extremes as far as political views and everything else and i'm hoping that pendulum is going to come back so i think that after such a rough road faith will come back stronger as well
1: and isn't that what we all hope for yeah <laughs> do you think we'll have nuns in space in 50 years
0: oh wouldn't that be nice If so, I hope they call it the Order of Our Lady of the Rescue, but
1: (laughs) (laughs) that would be pretty awesome. All right, let's see what else we come up with there. All right, 84. What motivates you to continue what you're doing? As
0: far as the writing, because I still have a need to laugh, and um, my characters drive me. I could just sit around all day and think up stories and basically turn into one of those people.
1: That just rocks back and yeah. forth.
0: Yes. Yes. One of those is rocking back and forth, caught in her own world. Maybe remembered, you know, I, I would never forget to eat, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, in fact, the reason I started writing was because I felt so guilty having all of these stories going on in my head and not doing something with them. So, that that would definitely keep going um what motivates me for other kind of writing because this really is my hobby this is my joy and uh what just makes me happy but my other writing that i do i freelance for business articles which incidentally is a great way to only get nice commercials on youtube but i do that as long as we need to pay the rent <laughs> not the rent but the mortgage. <laughs>
1: Yeah, some some people frown upon not paying your mortgage.
0: Uh, Yeah, I I would hate to lose this house. It is the awesome house of awesome.
1: Oh, that's so cool. Uh. I feel like my house is the awesome house of awesome. I don't know if other people see it that way, but I don't (laughs) think that matters.
0: No, it's if you're happy where you are. And we've got it tricked out in geek chic, so...
1: Yeah, I see your your nice dragon um, poster in the Hi. background there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, and in front of me are some of my book covers done as posters. Cool. Yep, and in the bedroom we have art by Kat Heckenbach, which if anybody is into geek art, Kat Heckenbach is somebody worth looking up. She does um, reclaimed paintings, so she will take an old painting she's found and then add Aliens or dragons, or something else, and she did one for us that has um it's kind of a Greek ruin, and then some people that are standing around gesturing and stuff and it's it's a very yeah, okay, it's all right painting, but then she put a dragon in the middle of it, instructing all of these people, and it's I wake up every morning and smile
1: <laughs> oh, that's just too awesome, so, yeah. There's no limit to the creativity we can come up with. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's see what creativity comes out on these dice. Okay. All right. What would you do if you had enough money and didn't need to work?
0: Oh, all right. First, um, we've actually daydreamed about this. We, when we get a lottery ticket, we sit down and figure out exactly what we would spend this on so by definition enough money that i don't need to work means that we have paid off our house and um done all the improvements that we need to it which means hurricane shutters because <laughs> we live in florida um so what would i do i would write i would write a lot more than i'm doing right now just my stuff i would pay somebody to do the marketing for it And I would go on a lot of cruises with my husband, where we would be totally spoiled. And I don't even care if we get off the boat. I just want to be able to go somewhere and go, hey, can I have another soda? Thank you. Or can I have some food? I would be so fat. It would be great. (laughs) (laughs) I would. And then I wouldn't even care how I look in the bathing suit.
1: (laughs) do you have an ultimate cruise destination
0: we are we're cruise people so we've done the bahamas twice we did a mediterranean cruise and so we want to do an alaska cruise next we're hoping this summer if uh, if things work out that's what we're going to do is a graduation gift for my third born when he gets graduates from college so
1: very nice alaska's amazing
0: when um, and this is another influence from Madeline Leingle. I've I've always thought about cruising to Antarctica.
1: That's on my bucket list. Is it? Oh, well, maybe we need to we do this together. Do it. Yes,
0: yes, <laughs> yes it's I love a plan. it.
1: <sighs> and my last question for all of my guests is: What gives you hope right now?
0: I'm not sure I've ever been without hope, and so. um as my faith grows, so does my hope. Um, I hope just always seemed to be something that has always been there and in me and around me. Um, so I've never, I've never thought about having to to reach for it from outside. But it, if I did, it would have to come from God and from my husband. And I will say, even even when I have hope. There's sometimes you know there's despair, you can hope and still despair for what you're in right now. and in those times, um, my husband gets me through that and and my good friends, so, so we are almost all online. so it's it's an interesting thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, this technology can definitely be used for the good.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would be a I would be a very different person, and I think a lonelier person without the internet.
1: Well, the internet is how I met you, and I am very grateful for that. So am I, so am I. (laughs) And the online community that's formed and things like that around me. And so I am incredibly grateful for technology in that respect. And I'm also incredibly thankful for the time that you've given to our podcast and to our listeners, and look forward to seeing all the neat, creative hilarious and deep things that you come out with in the future,
0: Karina. Thank you. This was a
1: lot of fun. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was a joy to have Karina on the show, and I look forward to more of her work anytime I need a laugh. You can find her writing at fabianspace.com More links are available in the episode description. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.